Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking to our guest, Luke King, whom Bill and I both describe as charming, intelligent, personable. Did I say charming? I'm trying to avoid saying anything that will make Luke part of the Me Too movement. But before we get to that segment, Bill and I wanted to talk about the process of faith deconstruction. When someone begins this journey, there isn't a one-size-fits-all model, and we don't all end up in the same place. Bill and I both went through our deconstruction process and came to somewhat different conclusions. And in fact, one of the reasons I asked Bill to be my co-host is because I wanted this show to be multidimensional. What we wanted to talk about before we get into Luke's interview really is this process of what does it mean to be spiritual? What happens when you begin to look at your faith? And is there a conclusion? And is it okay to come to different conclusions? Working with recovering from religion, there are different ideas about this. Recovering from religion doesn't push anybody in any one direction. It's just a matter of asking those questions. It's looking at your faith. It's determining who you are, who you want to be, and living in absolute authenticity. So as Bill and I have discussed this in the past week or so, we're just talking about when we do these shows, we try to put a little bit of everything out there for everybody and let people come to their own conclusions. And Bill, I don't know if you want to talk about your personal experience, what that was like for you, because as I mentioned, we didn't come to the same place. Our, our conclusions were very different, and you still identify as a Christian. I do. I don't, I don't typically use that term out loud with people, uh, simply because of the connotations that go with it. It has become so connected to a brand that I don't want to be associated with. But I don't like to spend a lot of my time saying, yes, I am a Christian, but I'm not like this or I'm not like that. So I tend to identify myself as a person of faith. I still value the teachings, the examples of Jesus. My background, I think, is, has helped me in that. But yes, I do, I do see myself as a person of faith. I don't have a lot of answers to go with it anymore. Uh, used to, in my fundamentalism background, it was all about having answers to everything. And if somebody asked me a question that I couldn't answer, it really drove me crazy. And I would have to go and find an answer. And by answer, I mean a Bible verse that I could just slap down in front of them and say, this is the answer. And so I don't have that anymore. And for so long, it was a very uncomfortable place for me. How did you maintain your faith after walking away from fundamentalism? Was there a period where you completely abandoned everything and then you came to this faith conclusion? Actually, it, it kind of was like that. As I began to come to terms with my sexuality and the 
complete contrast that was, or the contradiction that was to everything that I had been taught, all of the the beliefs, the doctrines, the creeds that I had been taught to believe all my life. When I came to the place where I wanted to live in the, the word that you used earlier, authenticity, in my mind, I knew I had to let go of that. It was a choice. Uh, I could not, as I had been taught, could not be a Christian and be gay. And I had tried for years to not be gay. That didn't work. So I said, okay. And so in my mind, I kind of did walk away. And and I remember, as silly as it sounds, I told God in my head, I'm not going to talk to you for a while. I, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do this for a while. So there was a walking away. And for several years, I didn't go to church. I didn't think about it. I didn't want to deal with it. It was just one of those uh, Scarlett O'Hara moments. I'll think about that tomorrow. For a lot of people, myself included, I threw baby Jesus out with the bathwater. I couldn't wrap my brain around anything that made any sense anymore. And then, as you know, and as I've been very public about, when I went looking for answers, I was looking for evidence. And in my book, Rethinking Everything, I took everything apart. And I, I show in the book where I went back and looked at the history and the and the archaeology and, and needed to discover what was really true and what wasn't. And quite honestly, Christianity did not hold up to what I had been taught and what I had believed. The journey itself, however, I think for both of us, was one where there are a lot of emotions. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of feelings of deception. You feel like you've been deceived by this. And then there's that hole. There's that ginormous hole that we try to fill or try to figure out who am I now without God or without this particular belief about God? Yes, I think it is. I think it's emotional. And what you said there, it is almost there's an identity attached to it. I was uh, what I believed. I was uh, what I was doing as far as being a minister and being being involved in the church. So there was an identity. And, and all of a sudden that was pulled out from under me and I didn't know who I was didn't know what I believed. I didn't know where I fit anymore. So taking a couple of years off kind of helped me. I, I dealt with uh, some issues of honesty and integrity in my life and worked through a lot of of the damage that had been done to me through, I think, abusive religion and religious practices, especially conversion therapy. And so by going through kind of a healing process, I was able then to look back and say, what is it that I do still believe? And even though a lot of it doesn't make sense, uh, it was faith is never intended to make sense. Faith is a choice to to believe. It's not it's not evidence based. It's not fact based. And that's why I don't argue with people about it. If you don't believe, if you choose not believe, good for you. But I have people still from my past who want me to come back to where I used to be. Uh, you used to say this. You used to teach this. You were this, and all of that's true. But that's not true about me now. So I don't want to go back to that. And I don't want to dictate their journey or their experience or their destination. This is just where I am. 
And the nice thing about the show is I think we're going to make everybody mad on both sides. So if you're a diehard atheist, you're not going to like what Bill is saying. If, if you're someone who holds on to some sort of spirituality, you're probably not going to like what I'm saying. But the point is that we as human beings do perceive what life is like. And because of our consciousness, we do sometimes feel that there is this magical awareness about life and we try to explain it to ourselves, which is what human beings do. But then there's this concept of spirituality. And when I was in grad school, we had this long discussion about what spirituality was, and they were hitting this button in me because at that point, I really was going through this deconstruction process, and I was angry, and spirituality only meant that it was worship. It was standing in a church service or being a part of a congregation. And I was done with that. I, I didn't want that experience anymore. And I didn't want to feel like God was lying to me anymore. But there are others who see spirituality different. It can be being lost in yoga. It can be in books. It can be spending time outdoors in the mountains or wherever, wherever a person feels connected to the rest of life. I don't think that we can completely discount that spirituality, but I do think it means something different to different people. And I do think it's something that we have to acknowledge among us. And in my opinion, let it be. Well, yes, we, we come from different places. We begin this journey by asking different questions. For several years, I worked with a, a support group of people who had been damaged by conservative fundamental religion, similar to mine, particularly through going through conversion therapy programs. And one of the dynamics that I would see is somebody new would come in and they were just beginning to ask those questions. They were just beginning to say, well, maybe everything that I was taught was not true. And I would see people who had been on this journey for years and had let go of the hurt or the pain or saw that that wasn't true. They wanted these new people to be where they were instantly. And so I think we have to have patience with one another and we have to allow each other to go on this journey. We can be there to tell our story. And I think that's one of the, the values of what we do here on this podcast. I'm fascinated by listening to the different journeys we've heard so far, but we have to be patient with one another and allow people to be where they are. I, I still hear people say things and I cringe. I hear people say things and I think, I remember being there. I, I'm watching a friend of mine go through it now. And he will say things, and, I, it, it, and it so resonates as familiar to me. But I can't say, well, you're getting there because that's condescending. So I just encourage him in his own journey. And I posted this in our uh, Rethinking Everything Facebook discussion group about uh, a friend of mine who came recently and we reconnected and we actually played for a funeral and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been on stage in 14 years and, and certainly hadn't sang in that, that amount of time, but it was a, even an evangelical church and we got together and she is in this process and we've known each other since she was 15 and I was 18. It's been a lot of years. She's in this process of really rethinking about her faith and it brought a lot back for me. We stood in my kitchen and we talked about where she was. Well, what she said was, everybody I know has turned their back on God. And I said, I didn't turn my back on God. I faced him. I faced him directly. 
And I looked at those things that I was taught and I came to the conclusion that based on the evidence, none of that was true. None of that makes sense. And her response to that was, where do I go from here? If I leave my church, there are a lot of people depending on me. There's a lot of family that's depending on me. And she said, when I think about what I believed and what I've spent my life doing, did I waste all of these years? What about what I taught my children? Mm -hmm. What do I do with this information? And, and she stood there crying, and my heart broke for her because it really brought me back to that point of when we choose to walk away from that faith or at least begin the process of rethinking what we believe, it's heart-wrenching. It is. And it does leave that, have I wasted my, I wasted, yes. you know, my education, college, seminary, I, yes. you know, did yes. I waste all of that? And it's a, it can be very traumatic. And I want to give voice to that. That's one of the things you and I have talked about is I really want to give voice to that on this program. I know we have some experts lined up and we have people that have done some pretty amazing things and written books. But part of where we really want this show to go is we want to hear from people that are in that process. Talk about what that's like for you. Talk about where you are. And it doesn't have to have a conclusion. Yeah. The, thing about, the thing about faith is that we say on one hand that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And yet there's such certainty about it. Yes. I know that God said this. I know the word of God says that. Well, Where's the faith in that? And that's interesting because just a couple of days ago, I was journaling and, and, and the journaling that I was doing was on this whole idea of the certainty of God. And I was getting it that particular week was getting it from two different sides. I was people who were wanting me to be certain about who God was, what I used to be, what I used to be so certain about. And so I was feeling this pull from people. You once taught us this. You once believed this, and they wanted me to be certain again. But then I also had people pulling me to from the other side, one person literally ridiculing me because I still maintained a faith and I still claimed a faith, and that I should just let go of it and own the term atheist. I should just name it. Because I, I do tell people that I'm probably, if there's such a term, I'm probably an agnostic Christian. But all that means to me is I don't know for certain. And certainty does tend to stress me out. You know, to me, that's the beauty of walking away from the faith is there is no more certainty. And because there's no more certainty, I can't judge you. I can't judge who you are. I can't judge your journey. I can't say I know for certain there, you know, there's an afterlife. I mean, you know, based on the research, I would say there isn't. But I, I can't judge another person for who they are or where they are in this life's journey. And that's so freeing. I don't have to win you to anybody. I don't have to evangelize. I can just love people where they are and accept where they are and say with this calmness, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And and that was a difficult one for me, but that's where I am as a person of faith. I'm still, I'm at that same place. I don't, I don't feel that somebody has to be where I am. And this one person who wanted me to go back to where it used to be said, well, what is the basis of your faith? What do you believe? And I said, faith to me is a choice. I have chosen to believe. I've chosen to believe there is a higher power. I can't define that higher power. I can't describe it. I'm not going to personify it. But I do believe there is. And that's just a personal choice. 
that's where I am. So it, it is letting people be who they are, where they are, and being patient with them. And as you said, just loving them where they are. We're going to wrap this up because I want to get to Luke's interview. But I just want to say that if you are listening to this and wherever you are in that faith process, it's okay to be there. It's okay to feel the feelings that you feel and to really process what that means to walk away from perhaps a lifetime of faith, perhaps a community of faith, realizing that there are going to be roadblocks. There are going to be people who get in your way like they send letters or emails to Bill. (laughs) Why are you saying this? It's not true. I, I love your your blog on holy trollers. That's one of my favorite <laughs> blogs you've written because it's so true. Yeah, right. It's I get it, the, I get those a lot. I know you get those a lot. <laughs> I got one last week. Somebody wrote to me and said, "Why in the world are you affiliated with recovering from religion?" They were just appalled that I had aligned myself with this organization because they they saw it as a bunch of radical atheists trying to convert everyone. And so I do get people that just want to confront me a lot. I seem to attract the holy trollers. Well, you know, you're out there, you're, you're speaking, you're talking about this, and, and it's always going to be there. But, it, you know, when we were in the faith, and I'm sure you get this because I still get this with my other book, Going Gay, it, they're, they're always moving the goalpost. It's you didn't do it right. That's why you don't understand it, either because evangelicalism is so uh, such an experiential faith you either didn't have the right relationship with with Christ, didn't understand what that relationship was, or in my case, because I've written a lot of articles and and talk about a lot of evidence-based explanations, then I get the other side, oh, you're too intellectual. Mm-hmm. You have to let that go and, and really understand who Jesus is. Yeah. So no matter where you are in that, you can't win. There's always going to be somebody to knock you down and telling you that you're not doing that right. You didn't do enough. You didn't, you didn't do enough. Pray enough. Right. Read the Bible enough. Go to yes. church enough. Yes. All of that. As Tim was saying, anybody out there who is at this, whatever stage you are, uh, if you've you know been involved in a, a Mormon church or a Jehovah's Witness or a Roman Catholic or Islam, and you're going through this process, we would love to hear from you. Uh, there, there's a place on our website on the recoveringfromreligion.org website. Look at look under podcasts at the very bottom of the page. Fill out that form and let us know that. You might be interested in telling your story because we'd like to hear from you. Absolutely. And just want to say recoveringfromreligion.org. This really wasn't meant to be a commercial, but since we're here, just check check out recoveringfromreligion.org. There's a lot of information out there for you, as well as people who are there willing to talk with you. And uh, no judgment. We just accept people where they are, want to talk and let you work through this process and know that you do have a community that cares about you. Yes. We want to welcome Luke King today, who is the host of Your Atheist Pastor podcast. Luke, we're very happy to have you here, and we have got a lot of questions for you. I am I am thrilled to be here and also slightly nervous that I'm about to be held accountable for the things I've said over the last two years. Your podcast is so interesting. And when I was a guest on your show, and I really like you, I have to say, I love your personality. I love your energy. So I went back and I'm not a podcast person, but I had to go back and listen to some of your podcasts from your, I don't know if you want to call it a coming out or when you shared your story. And then you just kind of went on and talked about a lot of other things. So first of all, let's get into your story. You were a four square pastor, correct? Yes. The Lord found me or I found the Lord somewhere around sixth grade or a little bit before that, maybe fifth grade. and 
really felt that, you know, quote, call to ministry early on. And long story, very short, eventually kind of moved into the Pentecostal space, really enjoyed the fact that the denomination I was in was all about, it was very tactile. So it was, you know, I did the whole speaking in tongues, casting out demons, all that fun stuff. So for folks that aren't familiar with what Foursquare is, because most people think it's a playground game where you have four squares and you hit a ball back and forth to each other. This was actually a denomination. And I was drawn to it for a couple of reasons. My main goal in my ministry life was to eventually become a chaplain in the Navy. And Foursquare provided me with kind of the quickest avenue to that. And that was my ultimate goal was to do that. But I also appreciated about the denomination at the time, how very active ministry was. And it wasn't just preaching and teaching. It was God is capable of healing people and you can have the Holy Spirit inside of you and that Holy Spirit will tell you things. And and you can really, uh, it was a very, just a, an active faith. I wasn't just sitting in a pew, uh, keeping it warm. So that's like the real kind of short background. Didn't Historically, didn't the Vineyard Church grow out of Foursquare? I don't know if Vineyard came out of Foursquare. Well, who did Vineyard? Was that John Wimber? Is he John the one Wimber. That, yeah. yeah, John Wimber. Who, who was a friend of mine. Yeah, I really you knew John. Yeah, yes. Oh yes. man, I read some of his books. Uh huh. Um, yeah, John. John and I. Uh, I used to travel uh, with Vineyard. Knew a bunch of the people. I spoke at one of their churches back when I was doing the ex gay thing, and uh, met John. Uh, and we, I mean, we weren't you know we weren't best best buds hanging out at the yeah. at the bar together. But I I did know him. He was a I, I always thought he was a, just an incredibly sweet man. Yeah, I uh, I loved his books, and I uh, so the Vineyard Movement. I don't know if they came out of Foursquare. Foursquare started in the 1920s mm-hmm. uh, by Amy Simple McPherson, and she yes. she was Assemblies of God for a while, but they didn't like her because she was a woman. And I love, uh, I, love you know, I love her. Yeah, I mean, she is just so incredibly phenomenal and and flamboyant and uh, uh, just. Just so interesting to study. Didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh no! And and not only was she was she flamboyant, she was cutting edge at her time. I mean, took started preaching on the radio, which was unheard of, and then also like uh, what I think six or seven divorces, like six divorces maybe. There was quite, <laughs> there were quite a few in there. Well, and I got fired for one. Well, you were raised in it, right? So both your parents came from so the Foursquare Church. I was raised United Methodist. Um, oh. in my in my faith journey. I was saved at a uh, at a high school lock-in. We went to a hockey game, and the guy came out and started talking about Jesus. And I have no idea what he said. Contextually, now knowing knowing what they say at these things, I can imagine it had something to do with hell and something to do with Jesus will keep you from going there. So I I was you know early. I think it was just, I think it was fifth grade, and it's again it gets fuzzy now. But I really dove in because I, I think ever since I was a child, I've always, I'm kind of an all or nothing person. And so I dove into that and I started going to my uncle's church and his church was very fire and brimstone, like very Southern Baptist. And then my parents didn't like the message that he was portraying. He was very much condemnation, judgment kind of person. And so they kind of thought that, that to pull us out of church and then not go somewhere, God probably wouldn't be down with that. So we went to a United Methodist Church. And that's where I really found, I guess, myself, my speaking voice. That's where I really started to pursue Christianity was from the United Methodist perspective. And really, I have nothing but fond memories of my church days, especially my early church days. Growing up in that church, 
so many friends, so many people, so much love. I mean, I, I loved it. I, I can't say anything bad about it. When we go home for Christmas Eve, uh, if we're around there, I like to go to the 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service because it's just so nostalgic. And I have so many memories of that time that were so good. It's my later years in the church that I have bad memories of. But that was a great time. And then I transitioned kind of into the more Pentecostal gifts of the Spirit when I was in college. That was where I really found that section of Christianity. What years are we talking about here? Well, so I'm 33. I was in sixth grade when we started going to the United Methodist Church. So okay. From sixth okay. grade to graduation was when I was part of that church. And then my first two years in college, I was a youth ministry major until I realized I hated kids. And, uh, and so, so I decided to get out of that, but I, I helped with the youth group those first two years when I was in college and then started to, you know, start moving out of that and finding my own voice and space after that. So 2022 was when I started to get involved in the, the more charismatic side of things. And you went to a master's program and where did you go and what was your field of study? So I did my, my bachelor's is in philosophy of religion. And then my master's, I started working on my master of divinity because I needed that in order to be a chaplain in the Navy. And I did that at Azusa Pacific here in Azusa, California. And I almost finished it. I have 16 units left, which is four classes, but it's kind of useless to go finish that now, even though part of me really wants to go finish it. My kind of ultimate dream, if I had enough money, which I don't, so this is just a pipe dream, really, is to walk in and talk to the dean of school theology and ask the dean to do my philosophy of ministry paper as if I were ministering to atheists, because I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. That's brilliant. Yeah. Use, you could use some of your podcast as show and tell. Right? I'd have to be very selective on what I sent over that direction. <laughs> They're a little bit more on the conservative side of things. Yes. Do you think, Luke, that because you didn't grow up in the evangelical church that it was easier for you to leave? Ah, <sighs> no. And, and I say that because even though we weren't evangelical in the traditional sense, so when you think of evangelicals, you think of non-denominational folks, and you know, Methodist is more mainline Protestant. It was in southern Indiana, so or northern Indiana, rather. So there's some genetics of some of the evangelical DNA was inside of that church. And it's a very red state and a very red part of the country, very conservative. So I think that the, the roots of evangelicalism were there. Plus, I was, looking back, even from my earlier days, I mean, I was an evangelical. When you look at what I believed, what I thought, Tim, when I was reading your book, I was just like connecting with everything that you said there in terms of like the fundamentalism. I was very much a fundamentalist. And so everything made it hard to leave. You know, I was 27 when I left. It took a lot of work to get to a point where I was willing to walk away from essentially everything. So I, even though I didn't grow up traditionally evangelical, I think it was still just as hard for me to walk away from it because of everything I had attached to my faith. You know what I found interesting was when you talked about your divorce. And I wonder, why did you get married? What was the draw to getting married? And then what was the end of that relationship like? Well, what happened? Well, Tim, if you want to have sex, you have to get married. Yes. And, uh, and so I grew up with probably, I don't want to say the lowest self-esteem in the world, but it was pretty, it was in the bottom tier. And I was the, the skinny kid in high school and in junior high. I was the kid who could barely bench press the bar. I grew up surrounded by these, you know, my dad and my, my uncle and my brother and my cousins are all just like these oak trees of men. 
and and I'm the skinny guy. And so I had like zero self-confidence in many ways. So in the tradition and in my theological viewpoint, it was number one, I have these hormones that God has given me. I can't use them until I get married. So all sex is bad until you get married, then it's okay, which is a whole issue in and of itself. That's what you do, you know, in terms of do did I want to get married? I never even thought about it. Like that was just something you're supposed to do. Like you, you, especially growing up in Southern Michigan, you graduate from high school, you graduate from college. If you're lucky, you get married, you have kids, you get fat, you die. That's how you do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you're lucky, you get some grandkids in there and throw in an open heart surgery. So that was just what I was supposed to do. And then in the church, if you're a single person, there's no place for you. Every, yeah, every, every sermon illustration is about marriage. The pastor always talks about how he and his wife have a relationship much like God and Jesus have with humanity. The singles group is just kind of like a, it's a holding pattern. So until you get married, the singles pastor is typically married or engaged because you couldn't have a singles pastor with single people because then the singles pastor might have sex with the single people. So you can't do that. And so I got married because an attractive woman loved Jesus and loved me and I wanted to have sex. So that seemed like a good idea. And I understand that. I mean, I, I, I mentioned in, uh, I think in the first, first episode, Tim and I did when I, when I felt that call into the ministry, I did what all good Southern Baptist boys do. I married a woman who could play the piano, um, because you knew that you were going to need that. Right. Because especially if you're going to be a really good pastor, you need a wife that can bring like, because uh, if you're married to someone and you're a pastor, like it's a two for one deal. The wife doesn't get paid or anything, but she's expected to be there and be part of the church community, which is a whole, that was a whole big issue in our marriage. But, but yeah, so, so that's, I mean, that's, that's why I got married. I wanted to have sex and you were supposed to get married because God said so. Did she share your ministry goals and vision and this kind of thing? Not at all. Not at all. So, no. So, I see, so she, I, see, I see an issue here then. She was as far from wanting to be in ministry as you could possibly be. And not only that, but she's was Japanese, native Japanese. So she moved to California when she was 19. And there were all kinds of cultural barriers. Not only that, um, you know, so she was a Christian, but, but there were also all kinds of cultural barriers that were, you know, in, in our way. So there was, I mean, there was, doom was spelled uh, from the very beginning, but I didn't know that at the time. You know, looking back on it, of course, it was a bad idea. But at that time, I was like, this is great. I can have sex and she's hot. So, you know. When the marriage started to fall apart, did you hold God accountable? Did you feel like you missed something? Oh, no, of course not, because it's never God's fault. It's mine. I just misread the tea leaves. When the marriage fell apart, I, I blamed myself. I remember having this conversation. We were standing in the bedroom, and I said, I'm going to start going to counseling because something is wrong here, and I'm at least half the problem. And I need to get my stuff together so that way maybe we can make this work. And I mean, I felt like I'd married the wrong person six months into our marriage. And this is four and a half years. This is about four years later that I'm having this, or about three and a half years later that I'm having this conversation with her. So I started going to counseling and I started really discovering me and what drives me, what I want to do. I was working with a Christian counselor who was also very open to self-discovery. And I had a class in my seminary that was called pastoral counseling. And basically what it is, is that it's a tricky way for them to get you to evaluate yourself. So the whole thing was about self-deception. Like that was the, the whole crux of 
that pastoral counseling class was how we deceive ourselves and how we need to stop doing that in order to be effective ministry leaders. So the scales fell off of my eyes during this time period. And I, I didn't blame God for it. I didn't blame the church for it. I just felt like I was such a terrible person because I made such a bad decision. But at the same time, I was also discovering who God made me to be. And so that made it like I was just mad about the bad decision I made, not mad at God at all. Which looking back and saying those words, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Let me back up a minute because I, I don't know all of your story. Uh, were you a pastor at this time or I know you were on staff. Were you a pastor? I was an assistant pastor, assistant pastor who receives no income. So that's, <laughs> you know, one of those. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, I was, I was on staff. I would preach on Sundays occasionally. I would do our announcements. I would do our closing at the end of the service. I was very much on stage, very much a part of the church life and community and what was going on. When your marriage started to fall apart, I know you mentioned on your podcast the reactions you got from the pastor who wrote a, a letter about you and your friends who had abandoned you. What was that experience like for you? It was as devastating as it could be for me in the sense that I knew there were certain things that were going to happen. I knew that people were not going to be fans of my decision. I knew that I would ultimately probably lose my chance to become a Navy chaplain. I knew that I would probably lose my licensing to be a pastor or at least be put on probation. What I didn't know was that my entire circle of friends, the close circle. So if you, I think of friendships in like multiple circles. So I think your first circle of friends are like those very close four or five people that are really close to you. And then the, I call them the second circle, which is those those people who you know pretty well, but you don't call them at two in the morning. You don't tell them about your marriage being bad. You you know them, but you don't know them. And my first circle all tried to fix it, and nobody heard me, and nobody listened to where my heart was coming from, and all of their wives basically forbid them to hang out with me because they thought that that like divorce was contagious and yeah. so 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 I was going to sneeze on them and I was going to sneeze my divorce illness on them and then that was going to lead to their divorce so I lost all my close group of friends uh, I still have one left but it was devastating for me it was uh, these are the people I lean on these were the people that I really wanted to be uh, that I thought would be there for me. They're the people that I thought were going to say, hey, dude, we're here for you. And none of them were, except for uh, one, but he lived with my, he, he lived with us. And so when I moved out, he like, basically became uh, my ex-wife's roommate, which it actually honestly wasn't weird at all because he's like one of my best buddies. And I knew that it, I, it made total sense and I wasn't mad about it. I was happy that he didn't have to pay a bunch of rent. But I, I couldn't believe how quickly folks turned on me and it was really heartbreaking for a very long time. And I felt very alone. I felt very isolated. I felt like everybody who claimed to be, I remember having this conversation with my mom. I was sitting outside by my motorcycle. I was on my break at work. And I was like, what the hell, mom? Like, where did all these people go who were supposed to be my friends? And she was like, that's life, man. Like, she goes, I can count on, on one hand the friends that I have. And it was my first time of really, I think, weeding out and noticing when people are 
friends with you because of the institution you belong to and friends with you because of who you are. And these people were not friends with me because of who I was, really who I was. They were friends with me because we had common life things going on. And when we didn't have those things in common anymore, we weren't friends. And I'm, I'm not mad at them for that. I just thought we were different friends. I was under the impression that if they had gotten divorced, I would still like have their back. Like if one of my buddies, I'll call him Jim, if he came to me and was like, hey, dude, I cheated on my wife and she's going to leave me, I would have been like, okay, that sucks. But what can I do to like be your friend still? I didn't cheat on my wife, by the way. That's just an example. So, so I think that for me, it was just, it was heartbreaking because this was my network. This was, these were my security blanket and it was gone. Um, the surprising thing though, was that that second circle of friends, three or four people who were on the periphery rallied around me and supported me in that and have become some of my closest friends now. So that was a really interesting kind of side effect that I really didn't expect to happen. You were talking about the, you know, you were, you were friends because of the relationship. Basically you were in church together or something. Is that a culture that we've created where we're only connected with people because of certain commonalities? And, and, and I think it's an indictment on the church. So I don't want to be friends with people I have nothing in common with because they annoy me. So, I, <laughs> so, you know, I don't, you gotta, we gotta have something. Uh, but I think that the church markets itself as a place for people to come. But the church says, doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much crap you've waded through in your life. You have a place here. Jesus wants to, to save you. So you come in there. And as long as you've waded through all your crap, and then you come in and they get to wash it off, and then you become part of the institution, you're good. But if you start to go through some crap while you're there, they have a problem. See, the, the problem is if I walked into that very same church today and I told my story, they would say, oh, we would never do that here. But they would because they want to be the, the savior. They want to be, you know, what Jesus was. They want to be the savior of people. But then what you don't realize when you become part of the church is you're becoming a part of the institution. And then once you become part of the institution, you have to follow rules for the institution. And as long as you don't step outside of those rules or you can touch the rules a little bit, like maybe you can say hell or ass every now and then, maybe you can have a glass of wine with your wife or have a beer with the buds, but you can't really get too far out of that. And please do not be gay or look at porn because then you're just, woo, that's just outside of things. But what you don't realize when you become part of the church, you're not joining a family, you're joining an institution, you're joining a corporation. And when you violate the bylaws of that corporation, you no longer can be part of the corporation and the institution. But it's not marketed that way. It's marketed as a family. But when you join a family, you're in it and you're part of it, theoretically, no matter what you do. But that's not what you do when you join the church. You join a corporation. Exactly. So, yeah. And, anyway. And, and I, I hope I didn't sound like I was making a blanket indictment no. on all churches because I don't want that to be. I, I mean, I'm involved in a church and, and it's a very progressive and loving and um, church that seeks justice and, and those kinds of things. So I'm not making a blanket, but I have seen that so often in other uh, other churches where somebody uh, sins differently than the rest of the the church, and they really are uh, made to feel like uh, they're outcasts. Yeah, Bill, well, that you know, as, 
I was going to say one of the things that you said, Luke, on your podcast, and I, I, this may be paraphrased, but I wrote it down as fast as I could. Where you said you have to deal with your shit before you get to church, not after you get there. Yeah, yeah, you, you do, you do, and 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 it's it's you you have to deal with it. You have to deal with the big stuff. So if you're going to get divorced, you got to get divorced before you show up to church. If you're going to fall into sexual sin, you have to. If you're going to be an alcoholic, you have to do that and start your road to recovery before you get into church. Once you get into church, you need to be on your way out of it or it has to be very limited. Like you can fall every now and then, but you can't really struggle in the church. And and again, like Bill said, I'm not saying every church, if your church isn't like this, then your church isn't like that. Cool. When people talk about being racist, I'm like, I don't get offended because I'm not racist and I don't need to defend that because I'm not a racist. Same thing. If your church is cool with stuff like this, then awesome. I'm glad. But there's a lot of churches that aren't. There are a lot of churches that, hey, we'll hose you off, but don't you dare go out there and start to smell again because we only hose you off once. And if you get your stink on every on other people in here, then we really have a problem with it because apparently sin is contagious. You're going through your deconversion process at this time, right? So you're going through divorce. You see how people are responding. You've got this pastor that wrote this seven-page letter that he was going to present to the board and talk about you. Where were you with your spirituality and what were you thinking? So- I, at this point, never questioned God. I thought that these were fallen humans who were transferring their own insecurities on me and that I, I never questioned God. I was mad at people. I, in fact, I sought out other pastors. I went to other churches to visit. I was looking for another spiritual home. But my problem was, as I was looking for other spiritual homes, I heard all the things that I had heard from my church at these other places, but I didn't trust it anymore because they would be like, oh, well, we wouldn't do that here. Or, oh, we love you. But my church said the same thing and they didn't love me. And so I had some like major trust issues church-wise. I didn't doubt God. I just then doubted the institution. I was like, well, maybe maybe my religion is something that you know transcends institutional religion. And I was one of those people who's, I don't like institutional religion. Uh, you know, those people. And, uh, and so, so then I, I started to kind of step away from the church and just my faith was my own at that time. But I never, at that, I still wasn't like, I don't think God is real. You know, I, I still was like, no, God is real. I need to find him. I went through some of my old journals, reading through that, like taking notes, you know, reading, reading Christian inspirational stuff, um, still really into it. But one of the things you said was you'd, somebody had said something about going after youth because you had to get them young. And you said that that, yeah. that was kind of a trigger for you. So that was when I was still a children's pastor. That was before that. That was before the divorce. That was before everything. So that always bothered me when I would be in these children's ministry meetings. And that was kind of, you know, you guys know this deconversion is not, at least for most people, deconversion is not like this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, the scales have dropped off my eyes and I can tell that God isn't real. It's the this death by a thousand cuts. And that was, that was one of the first cuts was I would hear these people say, we need to get these kids young because according to a Barna study, I think done in the early 2000s, if a kid is 13, once they, once they turn 13, you're less likely to convince them that Christianity is the real way to go. And I started thinking about that. And in my head, I was like, well, that makes sense. But then I, I thought, but that must have to do with development or 
I started thinking, well, so it's easier to brainwash people when they're younger. If this is a legit thing, then why shouldn't adults believe it? But I didn't, I was getting paid $250 a week. So why would I question that too far? Because then I wouldn't be making money. And that's a, that's a thousand dollars a month. So you can't turn that down because I'm, do, I'm right. doing my job. Which was also interesting that you talked about when you don't have to worry about whether your, your, where your paycheck is coming from, it's a lot easier to ask questions and go where the evidence takes you. Yeah, it is. And that's really how I got to where I'm at today is all of a sudden I didn't, I was cleaning toilets. So who needs God when you're cleaning toilets? So I was, you know, I'm sitting here working the night shift as a custodian at a college cleaning up people's vomit. And, uh, and, and you don't need God when you're doing that. So I was able to, and of course it's late at night. So all I get to do is listen to music or listen to podcasts. And, and so I started listening to other stuff and I started, started thinking about these things and, and, and no matter where I came down on it, I was still going to have a job. So I didn't have to have all the answers, the right answer. I didn't need a certain answer. I could just be whoever I was and that was okay. And, and that was really where my, my life, my career, my, my, my social structure was already gone. So I didn't need my faith for that. My career was already gone. I didn't need my faith for that. My friends, uh, my wife, you know, everything was gone that was connected to my faith. So, so all those social needs were gone. So now all that was left were those little cuts that I'd had for so long ago. And now I could really dive into those. Well, and having questions, and as you said, having time on your hands and having quiet—that's a—that's a dangerous combination. Oh yeah. Uh, we're going to stop just uh, for just a brief minute for uh, just a little bit of information about the organization we're working with. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Recovering from religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S. With our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering From Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Luke, I want to jump into this because one of the things I found interesting about your podcast is that you really talk about a lot of different subjects. And I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that is your, your stick. You're the atheist pastor where you're still dealing with issues, but you're dealing with it more for atheists or people that are deconverting. One of the things I found really interesting about your podcast is you have a couple on sex and sexuality. And for those of us that come out of any kind of religion and fundamentalism in particular, there's a lot of shame around our bodies, around being sexual. And you just jump right into it and talk about all of those things. I love the fact that you are so free about that. And you've got some great photos, by the way, on Instagram and you. your Facebook. I think it was the one of you wearing nothing but the apron that I saw. Yes. And so I had to show that to my husband who loved it. And then, of course, I sent it to Bill. He's so free. I mean, how did you get there? How did how do you feel about your body? How did you come to that oh, place? Oh, man, what, Tim, that is a great question that I don't think I've been asked ever. 
how did I talk, get, talk slow? Cause I'm taking notes. How did I get there? Well, so, okay, well, let's start with this. I'm not there yet. I still feel shame and guilt around my sexuality to this day. And, and it is a challenge. It's a challenge for me to be okay with it sometimes. I, I, I say in my podcast somewhere on one of the episodes, I didn't have my first guilt-free orgasm until I was probably 27 or 28. That includes when I was married. That's been a process. And I think one of the things that really started to change the way I, I see myself is when I started dating after I got divorced. I always saw myself as like ugly or weak or all of the above, like too skinny, not enough muscles, not fast enough, not athletic enough, not strong enough, uh, not good looking enough not articulate enough. I mean, I, my, my life could have been categorized by I am not enough. Like that was the message that I had internalized for various reasons throughout my entire life up until I got, you know, when I got divorced. And when I, when I got divorced was when I started realizing that I am enough and that I am okay and that I can be all right and that well, I'm a person of worth. So one of the ways that I started feeling better about my body was I dated a lot. And when you date, a decent amount of people, you know, if one person finds you attractive, maybe just, you know, maybe one person finds you attractive. If you go out and you, you know, I don't know, if you have like five dates in a week and people are attracted to you, then all of a sudden you kind of start thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I'm all right here. And then I, I dated a, a woman who really was very affirming to me and told me how attractive I was to her. And I knew she meant it. Uh, I always doubted whenever someone would tell me I was attracted beforehand because I didn't feel attractive. I, I never believed them. But with her, I started to believe it. And I started to actually think like, wow, I, there's, there's something attractive here for me. And then we also had some sex in some crazy places, guys. And as weird as that sounds, like, that is a free when your sexuality is is regarded to married sex in a bedroom it's very different than uh on the patio at new year's eve outside in the courtyard and so, <laughs> so that's two different things and and one of those is indicative of a very contained sexuality and the other is very indicative of a more free sexuality and being with someone who was willing to explore those things with me was part of it and then once I started practicing yoga, I started being able to do things with my body that I was not previously able to do. So when I started doing like arm balances and handstands and headstands and, and stuff that requires strength to do, I did something that requires strength to do and I felt strong because I was able to do it. And, and so it was this, this thing of, wow, I actually... Like I have this muscular strength to hold myself up on both of my arms and that's it. And, and, and I remember for the first time in my life in practicing yoga and in these relationships that I was in, I felt strong. I felt attractive. Somebody asked me the question, what do you want to do with your life? I never had permission to even explore that. So I started to find things that brought me joy. And I started to do things that brought me joy. And it didn't matter if I pissed anybody off because they were already pissed. Like I've already pissed people off to the nth degree. So who gives a crap if they're pissed because they're already pissed so I can do whatever I want. And so the yoga, the dating, and then I was, then I was meeting people who, who were not 
Christians who were more free with their sexuality. So in the yoga community, you know, there are times where you'll be in a situation, and this isn't every yoga community, I happen to be at a couple different things, where it wasn't wrong for the women to go topless. And it wasn't wrong for the men to appreciate the fact that they were topless, and that was fine. And so I was in a situation in an environment where sexuality was talked about more freely, and I started to think like, I always wondered if this was okay, and here it is okay, and it's okay for all these people. And, and that's where it, I started to then realize like, I'm not a bad person for wanting to have sex with someone. And obviously, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean having sex in inappropriate ways of forcing people to have sex with you. I feel like I have to caveat that now where I'm not saying like, go out and be a predator, dudes. But, but it was a situation where I was in an environment where sexuality was more free. And then I was able to explore that. But that also came with, you know, now the girl I'm dating now, Tammy, I mean, she undresses me with her eyes every time she sees me. And it's fantastic. And, 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 and she's very open with her sexuality. And so that has gotten me, you know, you see all these pictures of me on Instagram because I'm with someone who makes me feel incredible every day. And, and it's because of her that I've been able to embrace some of my attractive qualities and who I am. So it, it, it was, it, it took a village to raise my sexuality, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> We are so disconnected from our bodies. You know, when you read the scriptures about how your body is evil and awful, and it's very difficult to attach ourselves to our bodies and to accept the things about our bodies or how our bodies react biologically yeah. and who we are. It's, and I think, you know, even at my age, I, I still struggle with that because, I, I, you know, I think I mentioned on your show, there's always that, that those two things running through my mind, which is the evangelical and then there's the, the free person. And just trying to connect myself to become one person is very difficult to do. Yeah. And where yoga helped me with that was yoga is all about connecting to your body. Like at least the yoga I practice and the yoga that I was practicing at the time, it was all about listen to your body. If your body says you've gone too far for today, then stop. Start to pay attention to how you feel after you eat. Start to pay attention to how you feel after you do this activity or how this person makes you feel. So it was connecting to the body. And it was, remember in one of my teacher trainings, our teacher talked about how, you know, we separate the mind and the body, but the mind is part of the body. Like your brain is part of your body. So that helped me where it was like my body, it's okay. If it's okay for me to stop doing an exercise because my body says, yo, dude, you need to quit. Then it's also okay for my, for me when my body's like, I'm super turned on right now to then in a healthy way deal with those feelings. I think that is healthy because uh, as Tim was mentioning, I was also raised in a, in an extreme fundamental background and, and we were taught this trichotomy that we were body, soul, and spirit, yeah. but we were mainly spirit. Mm -hmm. And then secondarily, we had a soul, which was kind of our, our thinking and our mind and our feelings. And then last was the body and, and we had to conquer it. We had to dominate it. We had to control it. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to come to some kind of balance. And it's not something that I've ever been able to reconcile in my own life, which is something I'll talk to my therapist about later. <laughs> but um, but I do think that that we are taught this from a very young age and especially within the church. Now, in, in this transition in your life with with coming to understand your body and these things, was this also, was it running parallel to 
letting go of some of your religious background? Yeah. So the girl who, the first girl I dated who really kind of helped me realize that I was, you know, attractive, she was very like religion light. And so, so she would go to church a couple times and I went with her a couple times, but that was when I realized I went to church with her one, one afternoon and I was there and I, I realized this does nothing for me. Like it was, it was a moment where I hadn't been to church in a long time. I hadn't really considered God in a long time. I, I hadn't, I didn't disavow my faith, but I just didn't care about it anymore. I, I didn't, I didn't listen to sermons. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't try to go to church. So when she went and when I went with her, I was, I was like, oh, this does nothing for me. And then the pinnacle of this moment was we went to a Christmas Eve service and I loved the songs, but then I just went and hung out in the bathroom and sat on the porcelain throne for like 30 minutes while the sermon was going on. Cause I was like, I don't want to be in here and listen to this. Like I, I have no desire to be in here. That was when I kind of realized that I don't believe this stuff anymore. And I, I had, I don't think I ever had a conversation with her about it. I can't remember if I did or not. I did, I did talk to a few people, and one woman I knew in particular, she, she said that she was a person of faith as well, but she like called her church, took her name off the membership roster. Like she, she was adamant about disconnecting. And I remember sitting there going, wow, a lightning bolt didn't hit her. And maybe if I do the same thing, uh, a lightning bolt's not going to hit me. Like God's not going to hit me with a lightning bolt and be like, surprise, sucker, I'm alive. Um, you know, uh, which, which is what I was always expecting, you know, I, for the longest time, even once I, I, I wrote a certificate of divorce in my journal, disavowing myself from Christianity saying, I don't want to be part of this, you know, you know, like to utter, like I went all in and, and I, and then for about three days I was waiting for cancer, uh, or something to, you know, something for God to prove that I was wrong and that God was really real. Uh, that never happened. Still hasn't happened. And I've been I've been happily uh, happily heretical now for for well over like two, three, or four years. You know, four or five. I don't know how long it's been. What made you decide to become a world renowned podcaster? Well, uh, once I become a world renowned po- podcaster, I'll let you know. Until then, I started this because I love to talk, Bill. Somebody asked me what I want to do, what I wanted to do with my life, and the thing I thought was if I could talk for a living. and do that for the rest of my life, I would be thrilled. And I didn't know how to do that very well. And I didn't, and I've always loved the radio. I've always loved, I grew up listening to talk radio. Uh, My dad still listens to talk radio. I love listening to talk radio, but I've transitioned to podcasting now and listening to that a little bit more because now I can find the topics I want to listen to instead of just all politics because that's what most talk radio is. So I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh and I disagree with 99.99999% of everything that Rush says. But what I admire about Rush Limbaugh is that he's built a career talking for three hours a day, every day. And he, and he does that like almost every day of the year. And I think that's incredible. And I thought, well, maybe I could do that. So I bought a microphone and I thought one of the reasons I started the show is that I didn't need any more convincing to become an atheist or get rid of my religion. I was already there. But as someone who grew up in the church, I needed, you know, I wanted some kind of structure. I wanted like, okay, now how do I live my life as an atheist? Because I, at, at some point I wasn't taught how to in, trust my internal resolve, but there, there was everything out there was telling me how I should leave my religion, how I should get rid of my faith. There were plenty of things that were out there to tell me that religion was wrong, but nothing 
was out there to say, hey, you're not alone. Don't be a dick. And here's how we can live our life. And let's be happy about it. Because I'm kind of a happy guy. If I have some down days, I'm not there for very long. And when I get angry, that usually vanishes at some point. I, I generally, I, I wear my uh, some rose tinted glasses throughout the day. And um, <laughs> is that why? Is that why you kept the the idea or the title, atheist pastor? You see yourself so, in that yeah. kind of role. So here's the thing: I loved being a pastor. I loved it. I loved everything about it. You're so when you're a therapist or when you are a speaker, you show up. And you get one, you know, if you're a therapist, you spend one hour a day or one hour a week with these people, sometimes two or three, depending on how much therapy, you know, is necessary. And then you're there for that part of their your life. And then that's it. And then when you're a speaker, you know, if you show up and speak it, uh, well, when, you, when you're in the radio, it's a one-way conversation. And then when you are uh, part of, like, if you do speaking engagements, you show up and you're, you, you, you drop some truth bombs on people, but then you move away. I loved pastoring in that I got to live my life with people. And I got to, you know, on one hand, what I love about the, the, the atheist pastor thing is that my, at my heart, I'm still a pastor. Like, I'm still one of those people that is like, somebody's having a bad day and they're like, can I talk? And I'm like, yes, call me. Let's chat about your life. It's not that I feel like I have any right answer because I sure don't. I'm just trying to live my life and maybe... If you can look at the way I'm living mine, then you can either go, oh, I love what that guy's doing and I want to do the same thing. Or you can go, that guy is effing crazy and I'm not going to do anything he's doing, but at least it gives you something to think about. And I, I also did this because my voice is incredible if you guys don't know that and everyone should hear it. And so, so <laughs> I, I agree. I, 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 w- I was thinking the exact same thing. I, uh, having worked in radio myself years ago, I was thinking this is a voice for radio. I love the sound of my own voice and I get to hear it all the time. It's in my ears right now. Um, but, but I, uh, I do, I do feel like also that I do believe that I have something to say to someone and not everyone, not everyone's going to listen to my show and love it. A lot of people are going to listen to it and go, that's awful and crap. But there are some people who are going to listen to it and go, wow, I connect with that. And those are the people I care about. And, and I, I really care more about, I love people who are lifelong atheists. They're fantastic. I love having them on my show. I love having them as part of the community. I really, really connect with the people who came from where I came from. People who are like, man, I devoted my life to this. And it's that, oh crap, now what moment that most people who left faith have had. They leave their faith and all of a sudden they go, oh my gosh, now what do I do? Because, because everything that I built my life on, everything I built my morals on, everything I built my career on is gone. Now what? And that's what, I didn't have an answer to that question. So I started the show because I knew there was at least another person in the world that didn't have an answer to that question. And maybe we could find the answer together. So that's pretty much why it started. The topics that you talk about really are pretty varied. You talk to atheists, you talk to the person you had talking about kinky sex. I mean, you talk about a lot of different things as well as, of course, your own story at the beginning of the podcast. Is there a purpose of that or is there a method that well, you're going so through? So at first I had zero plan, uh, none, zero, zilch. I, I wanted it to sound kind of like a radio show. So we wanted to do different segments and stuff like that. But I, so initially my goal in the show was so when you listen to season one it's a mess of just me figuring it out 
and we talked about everything. One of the things I wanted to do in season one, which is why I had Lauren on, who's the lady that talks about kinky sex, and I had Fauzia, who was the, the Muslim lady on. I had those people on because I wanted people to meet other folks that they might not normally meet. So I was thinking of people who had never met a Muslim, that maybe they should meet one, and maybe they should meet one that they can relate to. I wanted people to meet someone who does kink porn because who's ever just randomly met someone on the street who's in that business? And so I wanted people to know who the person was behind the camera. And that was like season one. That was the goal in season one was, was I think I was trying to, I was just trying to do stuff. I mean, the best way to have a good idea is to have a bunch of bad ideas. And so I like, there's a ton of bad ideas in season one that you will never see again in season three. And subsequent seasons because they're just they're just it, we tried it didn't work um, or I just didn't have any commitment to it so I was like yeah this is fun but then we don't do it again. Season two was more uh, kind of interview stuff and uh, I think that was when I still did like religion in the news and some other things. It's a long time. It feels like it was a long time ago. So the method to the madness now, I mean, after two years and almost like I think almost a hundred episodes is where we're at. Is my main goal is to put a friendly face on atheism. And to communicate to the listeners that you're not alone, that you matter, and that we have your back. Because most of them don't feel that way. Most of them are stuck in the middle of the Bible Belt with, like, you know, they can barely breathe. So what, what we're trying to do now, the method to the madness, is we want to try to, and now we have an audience. So, I mean, the, my first season, I didn't know who I was talking to. You know, I'd have these, I'd see these metrics where it was like five, you know, 500 people listened this, this week. Uh, but no one emails you. So you're like, who the hell are these people? And what do they want to hear? Uh, and so now we've got, I, now when I talk into the microphone, I see faces. I hear voices. I know these people that I'm talking to. I know these people that I'm listening to. Or that, that, that I know these people who are listening to me. And so, so that's really helped drive what we talk about. And the number one, I've, I've interviewed now almost, I think by the time we get in, I think I'm almost at 70. I've interviewed almost 70 atheists since we started doing the Featured Atheist segment, which originally was an I Saw the Light segment. We wanted to highlight people who were coming out of faith, but then it just worked. People loved hearing their stories. So I would get this great feedback on, oh, we loved hearing this person's story. So when people love what you're doing, you should do more of it. And uh, I've interviewed almost 70 atheists. And one of the most common themes that I found in talking with um, everybody, whether it's male, female, is loneliness. I left the faith and now I feel so alone. And one of the things that your show has done for me is I don't feel alone anymore. And that has been really kind of paramount in what we do moving forward. So the method to the madness now is I want people not to hear from Luke I want other people to be the hero of this story because you are the hero of your own journey. Like I'm just a guide at best. And at worst, I'm an example of what not to do. So if folks can come onto the show, because not everybody can connect to my story, but Tim, somebody can connect to your story. And Bill, someone can connect to your story because it's your story. And if I connect with 10 people and Tim connects with 10 people and Bill connects with 10 people, that's 30 people we've connected to. And if those 30 people connect to 30 people, well, now we're exponentially proving to people that they're okay. And so that was one thing I want to do is for people to not feel alone. The other thing that's a super high value to me is that we're not assholes about religious folks, is that we will, we will talk crap about religious folks and we will uh, hold them accountable 
in areas that they need to be held accountable to. So the Catholic priest sex abuse scandal, I'm not going to sugarcoat that and be like, well, it's okay, guys, you know, they're all right. Like, we'll, we will make sure that we, if we're angry about something that's happening in the religious world, that we're going to be angry about it. But ultimately, I want to put a friendly face on atheism because most people, most Christians, and you guys can probably relate to this too, most Christians think atheists, here, here's the atheist morning routine for most Christians and what they think. We get up in the morning, we log onto our phones, and we check our abortion clinic network to see how many babies we killed last night. We, we, chop, off, we, chop, off the, we chop off the head of a few kittens, uh, we brush, we brush the, our teeth with the bloods of the saints, and we rinse out with angel tears. You know, we rinse our mouth with angel tears. And then, we, and then we go about our day trying to see how much murder, mayhem, and sexual immorality we can impose on the world. And that's just not true. Like I get up in the morning, I have my chai tea and I pet my dogs, you know, or I go teach yoga. But that's not what most people think we do. Most people think we're awful. And, and so my goal is to fight that. That's why we don't say things like all religious people are stupid. And we don't say things like religion should be destroyed. And we don't say things like, um, you know, religious people are all judgmental. We don't say things like that because that's not true. I wouldn't want people to say all atheists are judgmental. So why am I going to go say that about religious people? Because that makes no sense. So, so we want to be a place that, that's why we end every show with a segment called We Might Not Be Screwed After All. Because no matter what happens in that show, I want everyone to know that there is a reason that we're going to be okay. Because we are. You know, I just, I firmly believe, and those, those are my rose-tinted glasses, that I think that there's so much more good in the world, we just don't hear about it because that's not sexy. I love the idea that you're bringing, uh, you want to, you're putting a, a good face on atheism. You, you do it with a naked body yeah, and, a, yeah. and a great, and a great voice. <laughs> and let's not forget and a great voice. I encourage people to listen to your podcast. I, I listened to the one that you, when you recently interviewed Tim, Yeah, I thought you guys had just such an incredible, I wrote to Tim right after that. I thought the, the rapport between you two were, was interesting and, and, and so fun to listen to. Tell people how to find you and your podcast and, and your store. So the most important thing I want people to do is listen. That's it. So if you go to whatever podcast app you are on, Whatever you like to listen to, just go and search Your Atheist Pastor and listen to the show. That's it. If you want to know more, just go to youratheistpastor.org and, uh, and, and you can do that. If you want to find us on Instagram, Your Atheist Pastor, that's where you can see the naked pictures. Not naked, almost naked. Um, Not naked. Um, no. You know, Instagram would censor us there. But really, I, 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 want, I would love folks to listen. I mean, that's the most important thing for me. That's why we do it. It's a labor of love. So wherever you listen, just Google, search your atheist pastor. And uh, then you want to find more information about us. There's all kinds of links in the show notes. Well, Luke, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad that you joined us. I just, I love talking with you. And again, uh, youratheistpastor.org is a fantastic site. It's a fantastic podcast. I really love the podcast. And of course, your pictures are amazing as well. <laughs> and you know what? It's okay because you're only a year younger than my husband. Oh, really? So I feel, I feel totally nice. fine with this. I like that. If, yeah. If, you, if you're okay oh, with what, it. What, <laughs> Tim, if I wasn't okay with it, they wouldn't be up there. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're you're half my age, so I, I will stay out of the conversation. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much, guys, for having me on. It's actually fun to be asked the questions uh, every now Thanks. and every now Thanks. and again. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Luke. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. 
If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering From Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.